Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Hello there. It's great to be back. It's Elaine. And today I have a special guest, someone who I respect greatly. Her name is Cindy Watson. And Cindy's a highly sought-after international speaker and educator and coach. And she's known for her passion, commitment, deep caring, and her ability to inspire. She wowed at TEDx Ocala when she gave her talk. It was entitled Rise of the Feminine Voice as the Key to Our Future. As an attorney, Cindy broke down barriers, fighting to further women's rights, secure pay equity, break glass ceilings, and to end discrimination. As a matter of fact, she's been a lawyer for over 30 years. As a coach, she empowers women to unleash their feminine power and become the best version of themselves. Cindy inspires her clients to dig deep to discover their true purpose and take charge of their lives again. She's also a published author and has just finished her latest book, The Art of Feminine Negotiation, How to Get What You Want from the Boardroom to the Bedroom. She's written numerous short stories and two earlier books, Unloved and Endangered Animals and Out of the Darkness, The Jeff Healy Story. That one, she won a Golden Oak Forest of Reading Award. And she's the founder and past president of the Muskoka Authors Association. I could go on and on about Cindy because there are just so many things to say. She also runs the Women on Purpose website and a group on Facebook. All of that to say, Cindy has a lot of knowledge, experience, and empathy for other humans. And so I'm really happy to introduce you to my guest, Cindy Watson. Thanks for having me, Elaine. It is great to be here as always. I love the work that you're doing. So a huge congrats to you. Well, thank you very much. And it's uh, very important to me that I get to talk with you because as much as it's not the same arena, you've been doing an awful lot for people for a very, very long time both in your capacity as a lawyer and in your capacity of the founder of of Women on Purpose. Uh, Your TEDx talk, which we will have a link to, I think is super important that we get out there. Uh, The rise of the feminine is very, very important. I will say, however, that's not why we're here today. So today we are going to, I guess, dive a little deeper into mental health and mental health and families, because quite frankly, COVID has not been good to anybody, but we all have mental health challenges within our families with or without COVID. Yeah, Isn't that right, Cindy? 
Oh, it's something I, I'm so glad. I love, as I say, the work that you're doing in this. It's something I feel really passionately about. I think we've all been touched by it, but it's always that dirty family secret. And until we start talking more and being open about it, things aren't going to change. we got to start normalizing that conversation. Absolutely. Stop the blame, the shame, and the stigma. That's, yes. uh, that's my watchwords these days. Yeah. Well, I find it's interesting because everyone purports to be talking about mental health these days, right? Like we pay a lot of lip service to the idea about talking about mental health so openly. But, you know, I often ask when I, uh, you know, whether I speak to my trade union clients or otherwise, like, are we really talking about mental health? Are we being authentic? Are we being real? Are we being vulnerable? You know, you hear people out there saying, choose joy, you know, and well, that's easy to do if you're already in a good state, but not so much if you're struggling or suffering, you know, change your language to more positive choices. I mean, we have all of this positive language and I certainly advocate those messages as well, but I think in doing that, we minimize the impact, like as if we shouldn't ever use the word struggling or suffer, like as if it'll magically disappear if we just don't talk about them. And it is not that simple. That is such a good point. And, and absolutely, because I know that <laughs> the family says I'm, I'm unfortunately a little too joy personified at times. <laughs> uh, because I, I do have a gratitude attitude because, out, of, out of need. Yes. And for me, pushing that for me works to keep me on track. Yeah. So it's not, I know it's not for everybody. And what you're saying about mental health, to me, it's like, we're just putting the icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's actually getting into the cake. Yes. We're just kind of doing the icing. Nobody's bothered to get in there. Okay. Oh, I love that analogy. I love that analogy. And and don't get me wrong on that. Like, and and thank you for raising it about, because I am a huge advocate of gratitude and embracing joy. And I believe it's important to choose joy and love and connection. And I believe that words matter. You know, we want to call our best future to us. But I think when we avoid our real feelings, when we don't get into the cake, as you say, if we pretend they don't exist, they don't just evaporate and we're not doing anybody a service by ignoring that. No. And, and I, for one can say, if you stuff them down long enough, <laughs> they're eventually going to come out. Yes. And especially for people who are suffering from depression or anxiety, when everyone around them is telling them that they should just embrace joy it makes us feel worse. Like there's something wrong with us, right? Apparently everyone else can just feel it by simply by wishing it. So it's just me that can't, right? It's one more thing that makes me less than it's just one more thing that I can't get right. So I think we need to start talking about the elephant in the room, you know, don't pretend we don't see that 6,000 pound behemoth sitting in the corner over there. Absolutely. Uh, And, and I think that, that it's important. I know that as much as as I push gratitude, I, I don't, I no longer stuff down those feelings. If I'm having a bad day, if, if I'm just feeling like, you know, some days are very painful and some days it's just like, you know, I I don't know if I can take any more pain at the moment. That's the time that I've trained myself to kind of look around and go, you know what? You got out of bed today. Yeah. You're not using a cane today. Yeah. You're you're trying to walk the dog today. These are all good things. 
Yeah. And then the dog licks my face and there's a little more happiness <laughs> there. But I think it's important that we acknowledge those bad feelings. Yeah. When they're there. And, and yeah, don't stuff them. I, I think not only for the individual, I would say, because we're talking here about families dealing with yeah. mental health as well. And I think, you know, often the family thinking they're doing the best thing, they don't allow the space for the person to feel the feelings or express the feelings because we just want it. You know, if we ignore it, though, if we don't try and coax that elephant out into the room, out of the corner, as I say, it's going to end up sitting on our chest. And in particular for the person who is potentially suffering, um, you know, I think it's important that we start, as I said at the outset, we've got to normalize the conversations around this. You know, we all have mental health, like our physical health, you know, and some have great health, some not so much. And it's not always and forever. Sometimes we get sick, you know, when we're sick physically, we get help, we take care of ourselves, we get better. It's a spectrum. And it's okay to talk about our physical health. We are rarely embarrassed or shamed when we share our physical health status. But that is not the case for our mental health, right? There's mm -hmm. still such stigma. And I think we got to know there's stigma within ourselves and from others. So we judge and we're judged. We shrink and we get shrunk. And it makes no sense when you unpack it because we all have mental health. And like our physical health, it's a spectrum. Uh, so really critical that we find those meaningful ways to, to talk about it. And I, I'm so glad that you are doing it. Stop making it about us and them as well. Like, let's yeah, yeah. it's not like, ooh, them, let me be really benevolent and, you know, come like yeah. acknowledge we all have it sometimes. I think that's so important. And, and I think that's a really good point that you, you made there, not just the us and them, but it's being able to acknowledge it within your family yes and and you know i think a lot of boomers came from the age of yeah just don't talk about it it'll go away yeah, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work with a lot of things including pregnancy funny enough um, <laughs> that's so good well and it's funny because i was asked to speak recently at a big uh, trade union event about you know and again they had a number of sort of expert speakers talking about mental health. And I was sitting at the back of the room waiting for my turn. And you hit the nail on the head, Elaine. They were all talking sort of at this high level about it. But nobody was getting into the cake, right, of it and getting messy, which then doesn't give anybody permission to. So I, yeah. I got, you know, I got up and I said, you know, and I was thinking to myself, suicide rates are at all time highs. Depression, anxiety, psychosis, all on the rise. So I'd say, you know, Bell, Bell has that campaign, Let's Talk. So allow me to volunteer to start and get real and authentic. You know, we've got a long history of family health issues. My grandmother threw a, a pot of boiling water at my grandfather when my dad was on his knee at only two years old. I had an aunt who tried to stab an uncle. I had a cousin who committed suicide. We've got a long history of addictions and drug use, an uncle that dried on the street. And Growing up, these were shameful secrets, right? I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. and it, it was their circumstances, you know, bad upbringing. And my future would be different. My family would be exempt until it wasn't, right? And uh, Absolutely. Yeah. My, my father's only sister, my Aunt Margaret, died when I was seven. I didn't know until maybe 15 years ago. Well, we still don't know what happened because her husband beat her senseless constantly. Yeah. But she ended up with a, a drug problem from, you know, pain pills and what have you. 
but it was a very long time ago. My father's going to be 90 in January. So Margaret would have been 92. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was a long time ago, but it was too shameful to talk about. Yeah. And, you know, and like you, my father's grandmother was an, an alcoholic. My grandmother, who I loved, she had nicotine poisoning. Wow. Like that, you have to be majorly addicted to cigarettes. <laughs> you know, granted, she was in Scotland and they were Navy cut and, and they were way more dangerous, I guess, than, than yeah. you get here. But alcoholism was a way of life. Yeah. Okay. Al alcoholism, betting, you know, all of these things yeah. were part and parcel of the strata we grew up on. Yeah. And you know, in, in Scotland, when you're poor, more so than, than North America, you have so very little, you are, back then, they were so busy trying to protect what they had by not showing any cracks. Yeah. That yeah. to me, it just made the cracks bigger. So deeper. no one ever, yeah, much deeper. No one ever had any of the cake, okay? Yeah. There's a <laughs> lot of icing slinging around. Yeah. Yeah. And there's yeah. a lot of baggage that comes with those deep cracks. Like I love that yeah. analogy actually, because it is, they just keep going deeper and deeper and become such a part. And when we talk about sort of speaking out about it, and I'm, I'm happy to share like certainly a personal example close to home. I talked about that sort of family history growing yeah. up, but even then there was that us and them, right? Like we yeah. were different. Yeah. And, you know, we, even within my immediate family now, I've, you know, we had three kids in three years and, as you know, my son got diagnosed with a serious mental health issue. He was diagnosed a few years back with schizophrenia. And there was one incident when he went missing. And, uh, oh, my God, I was like, my heart was ripped out, Elaine. And I went, I made a choice to go public. And I was a basket case, right? I aired on Facebook Live sort of sharing the experience and, you know, how all the deficiencies of our mental health care system, which oh, we can yeah. get minute. But the thing that was interesting, my husband was mortified, to be honest, like he was more because again, it was that growing up stiff upper lip, yeah. you know, talk about it, which had been my upbringing as well. And I thought, to hell with this, like if people don't, st if we can't normalize the conversation, things will not change. So I talked about that elephant. And you know, guess what, I didn't implode, I didn't melt into nope. a puddle on the floor. And the thing that was interesting was my husband who was so mortified that I'd gone public. Um, so many people reached out to him. Uh, interestingly, though, not publicly. I was calling on people to share it yeah. publicly. A few did, yeah. but very few. But a hundred people within that first week reached out to my husband, all of whom, as you can imagine, you know, my sister, my mother, my wife, my, yeah. my kids, all, it was a universally shared experience, but nobody was talking about it. So everybody was feeling that shame. Um, although I do admit there were costs for my son, which, and it yes. is one of those that, you know, he ended up being very open about it. And he lost three back-to-back -back jobs. They loved him, loved him. The minute he acknowledged he had a mental health issue, literally the next day in three back-to-back -back jobs, he ended up getting terminated, right? So, I mean, until we get comfortable talking about mental health in the same way that we talk about that physical health, things won't change. And, and if I may, I think, you know, I mentioned about our mental health care system being broken. 
it becomes a vicious circle. Governments are not investing the money that they know is required because there's not a strong enough lobby. And there's not a strong enough lobby because people are too embarrassed to share their stories, to hold up their hand and say enough, which is why, again, we've got to start talking about the cake so that people become an effective lobby group so we can start getting some of the changes that are critical if we're going to start, you know, affecting meaningful change on this. Absolutely. And it's like we talk about that, that elephant in the room, the, the behemoth. Well, there's an entire herd of elephants yes. and put the tag shame on them. Yeah. And that's why. Yeah. We're trying to avoid that herd. It's not just the elephant in the room that's going to trample us. We're so afraid of that entire herd. Mm. And it's, I don't honestly believe there's a family anywhere that has not been touched. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, I invite I, you to ask your listeners, for everybody yeah. listening or watching out there, I invite you like ask yourself, have you been touched by mental health, either yourself or a loved one, someone you care about in your family? Because I think, as you say, there is not a family out there that has not been touched. And yet 60% of people with mental health challenges don't seek help because of no. the stigma. That is a staggering number of people not getting help. And of the 40% who ask for help, the resources are just not there the way they should be. And you know, I'll chime in now because, as you know, my daughter is mentally ill, has not formally been diagnosed as, as I mean, that's as close as we know because she's basically taken herself out of the family and any and everyone who knew her for the past five years. Yeah. And the unfortunate thing is there's so little help for mental health. If you are an adult... There is nothing a parent can do. When, when you are a certified adult, we are just onlookers to the crash. There's yeah. no help we can offer. Yeah. And, and believe you me, we have tried. Yes. And it, it, it is unfortunate. We're, we're in the same situation um, with my dad. Yeah. My, my dad was recently diagnosed with early stage dementia. Um, he's going to be 90 in January. So, you know, we thank our lucky stars that it's this late in his life. Yeah. And, and we will deal with it. Yeah. But there is so little available. Just to get a diagnosis took a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And we're, we're going through that as well. I mean, it, you know, as, as you know, my mother was diagnosed with dementia as well. And, and the thing that amazes me, both dealing with the situation with my mom with dementia, although there's less stigma there, it's certainly now yeah. other types yeah. of mental health. But in terms of the resources, I mean, as you know, I've been a lawyer for 30 years. I'm a social justice yeah. attorney. I am a yeah. strong advocate. And bringing all those skills to bear, I can't tell you, Elaine, how many points through the process that I thought what the heck do people do out there who don't have that kind of sort of advocacy background? Because even with me constantly applying that pressure and asking all the right questions and going up the food chain and advocating and advocating and advocating, it was a painful process. It was pulling teeth at every possible step of the journey. And it broke my heart thinking about families who oh don't God, have yeah. Most people yeah. don't have 
communicate that vociferously. And I can't no. imagine what their experience must be. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I'm a relatively strong person and, and a bit of a pit bull when it's people that matter to me. So I just won't let go. But yeah. like you, I feel for all those people who aren't, yeah. you know, aren't as pushy, aren't as loud, aren't as vocal on expecting something to be done. Yeah. Because they're just stuck there. We, you know, sadly, we went through this a number of years ago in the, just the health system uh, with my, my best friend who had cancer. And because her and her husband were not uh, loud about requiring things. Yes. She found out she had cancer in an emergency room. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not how it should be. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. And I think women are particularly disadvantaged in, in, in both aspects because we have been so conditioned not to self-advocate, not to be the squeaky wheel. We are less likely to be taken seriously or to even advocate for ourselves, which is a real um, ongoing problem that that needs to shift. And COVID has certainly exacerbated the problem. I mean, we were already, I believe, at a crisis in terms of the mental health care that we, or the lack thereof, frankly. The lack. But COVID, like, and when we were going through the the peak of the crisis with our son during yes. COVID. So visitation was, a, they at a time when people most most needed access to family, they were depriving them of it. And no common sense was being applied. All of the recreational programs were put on hold. All of the addictions counseling programs were put on hold. Yeah. Everybody was using COVID as a justification to be depriving um, people who desperately needed it at a time when they most needed it. And we haven't seen any of that pick back up again. It's yeah. still... Uh, and again, it goes back to, we need a really strong, effective lobby. And that's only going to be happening yes. if we yes. all start speaking up and, and, and recognize ourselves where our biases come. Like I, you know, I often challenge people and myself to think, Hmm, you know, how many times have you used terms like, you know, crazy or off, you know, oh, loopy, yeah. not right in the head, whack, cuckoo, bonkers, demented, you know, whatever, loony, psycho, another, it is no wonder that the people around us won't speak up when they need help. Who wants to wear Absolutely. Those? Yeah. Yeah. And I did a show about this. Um, well, I think it, it airs tomorrow about the fact that I finally figured out why I was so adamantly aware of in my generation, if you showed any signs of not being what they have normal yeah. You could be locked up. Yeah. And in fact, a young man I knew was because wow. he was a runaway. Yeah. And they had nowhere else to put him. Yeah. And yeah. they put him in an asylum. And that was, you know, a bit of a triggering factor for me. But to go back to what you just said about mental health and addictions and what have you, I find it interesting that in a country where the government runs the liquor control board I know. <laughs> okay throughout covid yeah. liquor stores were open and i do understand because of addiction it, you cannot deny certain people their, their drug of choice i totally get that but on the other hand it was only available because the government makes them a lot an awful lot of money oh yeah 
from yeah. those stores. And I didn't even buy the addictions argument, to be honest, Elaine, because it's no addictions expert would say that the appropriate treatment is to get unfettered yeah. access to it. Yeah. If, if, the, if the agenda was really to deal with people who were addicted and potentially would have withdrawal, there are any number of easy ways that could have been monitored yeah. where they get it in increments, but they didn't. It wasn't. It was, it was no. declared an essential service throughout COVID and yeah. allowed to go for purely financial reasons. I, I agree with you. Yeah. And it's funny when you talked about that sort of needing help piece. Um, I think as a society, we have attached so much value to I'm a self-starter, I'm a this, I don't yeah. need help. And we need to stop attaching that value to not needing help. And, and like you had mentioned, you know, I was brought up to pride myself on just sucking it up, grin and bear it, you know, fall down and get back up again. Don't show weakness. God forbid, don't show yeah. weakness. And I think one of the precursors to starting to shift the dialogue is let's stop celebrating that isolated lone wolf response to mental health. Yes. Let's start recognizing that we all have vulnerabilities and it's okay to ask for help. Yeah, because, you know, I, I have opened up about the fact that I was what I considered a one man band, one person band, because I wanted to fight my own battles. And that's how I was brought up. I know so many people like that. What's really interesting to me is millennials and Gen Z or Z, yeah, <laughs> they have more global concerns and they are much more likely to make a case for mental health, yeah. for how they feel, for their emotions, for being able to self-soothe than we ever did. Yes, yes. And I hope it's interesting. I, I love that you've raised that because I've been and I'd love your views on it. Like I, I am hopeful. That gives me hope because I do agree. Yeah. I think that generation, there is definitely more openness to a vulnerability there. Yeah. And yet there's that one part of me that is like, we still need to be really vigilant about this because think back to the 60s with the hippies. I mean, there was all kinds of vulnerability and a recognition of climate issues. And there was so much hope for change and people recognizing. And yet that ironically ended up becoming the generation that were, you know, the most ruthless business, uh, sort of money driven. So I am hopeful. I am cautiously optimistic that this shift that we're seeing will stay uh, and start to affect meaningful change and that we won't get that kind of pushback that we did. And, you know, I'm a big believer well, in educating around it as a starting yeah. point. Yeah. And, and I think the difference, because I came in on the tail end of the 60s, okay, I, I was sort of delayed flower child, a little <laughs> bit younger. I'm only 67, so I'm not quite there. <laughs> Thank you. But this, this net new group, I think they have a better chance of building on what it is they're looking at. Yeah. Because boomers and, and Gen Y are saying, oh, you know what? They're right. Yeah. And more and more of us, are saying, oh, hang on, like we're here today saying we have to pay attention to mental health. We have to pay attention because the flower children and, and that whole, all of those movements, there was 
no real um, advocates for them in the other generations. Yeah. They were just so busy saying how horrible they were with their dirty, stringy, long hair and, you know, like (laughs) such banal stuff. That's true. That nobody took the time to really understand what they were aiming for and what it meant. Yeah. No one handled the the Vietnam veterans that came back. Nobody nobody took into consideration all of the, the mental health issues that war engenders in people and that we had been seeing but not looking at through yes. two world wars through korea then yeah. vietnam and and it just was such a to me such a tidal wave of negation that the hippie movement and all of that they just gave in to what was okay fine fine let's yeah. just get on board and sometimes yeah. when people push you far enough yeah. and you adopt their credo, you become more yeah. than they ever yeah. were. And, yeah. and that's exactly, I think, what, what you were saying. So I think we have more hope for these generations because we are engaging. We're mm-hmm. starting to see that, you know what? We did not know the right way. Yes. Uh, you know, there, there are definitely better tracks we can take yeah. to make changes for those that, that are coming now. And yes. I see it in my grandkids. Yes. My yeah. grandkids are so much more aware of their feelings, the boys and, and the girls. Which is lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and there's no... Um, well, that's a boy thing and that's a girl thing. And there's none of that. Yeah. And I, to me, that makes me very happy because now that we have a multitude of, I'll call them genders for lack of a better word, now that we, we all use the pronouns that, that matter to us, I have yeah. to admit I'm a boomer. I was brought up with proper grammar. So the only one I have a problem with is they. (laughs) (laughs) But all kidding, all kidding aside, (laughs) you can be whatever you want to be and, and, and wear whatever you want to wear. If you can find happiness in that and you can be productive and love other humans around you, then I say, Hey, let's have at her. Yeah. And it's funny, I think that touches on three things that I see as the key to shifting and that I, and again, that really give me hope. And one is our education system is now supporting it, right? So we are seeing those discussions take place in our education systems, um, which you certainly didn't during the 60s or 70s or at any point. And I think that helps support, but also when, whether on gender or issues of mental health and vulnerability, people are reflecting more now on our biases, right? And paying attention to ensure their best mental health and accessing resources, right? And I think people are again becoming increasingly aware of our language, right? Are we using disparaging language? Are we calling out the language of others and changing the culture one conversation at a time? And that that certainly gives me hope. I think that that trifecta will help 
I think, prompt the kind of lobbying for change that we need, whether it's programs being cut during COVID or our system being so reactive rather than proactive. Like, my gosh, let's get a proactive system, make sure that we have enough resources allocated, that there is enough support available. Staying away from what we're starting to see, this privatization of our healthcare, especially around mental health, where we're making it so impossible to access that they're setting up the circumstances to create a two-tier kind of privatized healthcare. Yes. So, and we've I done that started. before and it didn't work. No. And at a time when, I mean, the rest of the world looked to Canada and held our healthcare system up on a pedestal. And here we are now starting to follow a more Americanized model that we know has been a dismal failure. It makes no sense. <laughs> No, it really doesn't. And and we went we went through that that two tier system um, when when I was in my early twenties. My uh, my aunt had very serious health, health issues. She was the first person in Ottawa to have open heart surgery, the first woman, and had breast cancer, and you name it, she had it. Wow. And it was a, a real problem for us. And when the two tier came in, well, of course, her doctor definitely wanted the two-tier and that's where he went and it became a real issue for the family because we didn't see her getting better care or or better service we just saw her paying a lot of money yes yes and and that that became a bone of contention within the family because it was you know my grandmother was unhappy with this we weren't seeing any changes in my aunt we weren't seeing her get any better and, you know, luckily that that system fell apart pretty quickly. Yeah. But it's it's interesting to me because it's short-sighted, even for those who believe that it's, well, economically we can't support it and blah, blah, blah. The evidence, objective evidence is to the contrary. Mental health yeah. is the most expensive disability in the workplace. 500,000 yeah. Canadians call in sick due to mental health every week. Yeah. And in the U.S., from depression alone, 200 million lost work days a year. That's almost 4 million a week. Like even from an employer's perspective, I mean, employers should be out there lobbying, you know, employers who fail to recognize and adapt to these new realities. This is a huge economic cost. Put the money into proactive care to set, to ensure that we've got appropriate mental health care. And the, the cost benefit of that is going to be profound at the back end. And, and I will say this, what we're seeing, because I have a lot of uh, connections in HR and in this new leadership model that people are looking at leadership to light the way for a better, more inclusive attitude yeah. and, and taking on board, uh, treating your employees like people Yes, and, and understanding that they have feelings and emotions and they need to be part and parcel of what you're doing. Yeah. It's no longer, you know, that that lovely C-suite up there and everybody else is just, you know, yeah. little ants down here. You yeah. need to, the whole system needs to embody the values and the mores that, that you want in place yeah. in order to get people to not just buy in, but to feel good about what they're buying into. Yeah, I love it. And I I don't know that their intentions were so high, but I'll take it any way we can get it. I think for a lot, COVID again, really 
um, escalated that process because you had the great resignation or the great reset, wherever yeah. you want to call it. And I think it was a huge wake up call to employers. If you want to attract yeah. and retain top talent, you need to start focusing on the mental health of your employees, create wellness programs, offer them balance programs, really focus on making sure you've got environments that uh, improve their mental health as mm -hmm. well as that physical health. I think it's, and we all need to take some responsibility as well yeah. Yeah. I think we've defined success for so long based on that very competitive model where everything yeah. is about amassing material. Maybe it's time we all start focusing on our mental health, right? Be intentional. Give ourselves grace, you know? Don't underestimate. We've talked about COVID a number of times. Don't underestimate the impact that that global grief has caused, yeah. that kind of polarization yeah. that we're seeing, right? That that will help avoid our burnout rates are at all time highs, yeah. mental health yeah. and morale are at all time lows. You know, they say suicide, the rates are at all time highs. And to think that for every suicide death, there are a hundred attempts. That is a pretty yeah. terrifying. It really is. Those stats are, are unbelievable. A couple of weeks ago, we went out for dinner. We took my dad out and just went to Boston pizza. And when we got to the reception desk, the gentleman at the desk was one of the managers. And he said, oh, if you don't mind waiting a few minutes, I just have to see which of our servers is able to take on another table. Yeah. Which, think back to before COVID, yeah. no one thought about the poor person yeah. that was serving 100 tables and running back yeah. and forth and doing whatever. But in order to maintain staff now, even at that level, yeah. They, they have to start paying attention to the whole person. Yes. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I love it because we can't keep our head in the sand any longer, no. right? I mean, the no. statistics, you know, 48% of employees are experiencing at least one work-related mental health risk factor. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it, just the stats are, so it's time to Stopping ostriches, get our head out of the sand. So everybody, <laughs> pick up your heads, get out of the sand, stop just eating the icing. Let's all dive into that cake and make a mess. I love it. I love it, Delaney. <laughs> kind of an odd way to put it, but <laughs> well, uh, I, I have to say thank you so much. I knew this was going to be a good discussion from the get-go. But oh. um, how about I have you leave our audience with maybe a little, a little gem or a thought from you about what each of us can do going forward mm. to well, help ourselves, but also be aware of others. I love that. I love that. I would say I, I'll take, if it's okay with you, sort of two tacks. One is what you can do on the broader picture, because I think we all want to take some ownership of that. One is yeah. educate yourself as much as you can. Reflect on your own biases. Pay attention to the language that you're using and be prepared to lobby for change. And the other angle I'd like to take, though, that I think is important for us to all think of is what are some things you can do to improve? Improve your mental health because again it's a spectrum for all of us so you know Elaine you so beautifully already talked about gratitude um, you know I talk a lot about the gifts of gratitude as being a really powerful motivator recognizing the power of our thoughts that our reality is determined by the meaning that we attach to the things that happen to us so really taking control of that directing your focus 
love yourself unconditionally, right? Like find ways to absolutely love on yourself. Create a brag list where you list things about yourself that you can love about yourself and read it to yourself every night before you go to bed. Live fully present, you know, in the moment. Live mindfully. Adopt an abundance mindset instead of a scarcity mindset. And get outside. Let the universe inspire you. Like throw out a blanket and look up at the sky and the stars at nighttime or, um, you know, just change your perspective. Think of the power of your perspective and the questions that you put to yourself. So in short, I would say be prepared to look at the broader picture and get active and talk about it. And also look internally, what are some things you can do to make sure you're always improving your mental health? That's perfect. And I knew, I knew you, would, you would put out something perfect. I'm going to add one thing to that. And it's if you see or hear someone not being appreciated, mm. don't just think that's awful. Say something. Oh, do something. Don't just be a fly on the wall. You need to jump in and participate. It's not always going to be fun and it could get messy, but if we don't start doing it, we're not going to change anything, sadly, except the suicide rate. And I'm sorry to say it's going to get worse. I love that. So not to leave us, yeah, not to leave us on, on a, a harsh note. But I think it's really important that we start participating yes, and looking out for others. I love that. And I would say on both fronts on that, as you said that, I was thinking one is calling out that behavior when even if it's yeah. uncomfortable. And the opposite mm -hmm. is also true. If you see somebody, a simple smile, acknowledge them. If they're wearing something that you like, it's like, wow, yeah. you look great in that. Like, those simple, kind moments that we have become in such our busy to-do lives, just take those moments to make people feel seen and heard and let them know they matter. I love that. And so on that note, you can also just walk by somebody, say hello. Yeah. It's really simple. And it doesn't require anything back. Oh, wow. <laughs> I knew we were so close, so close. To not so, but even even the canines want to get in on the action in saying hello. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. So have gratitude for the fact that we got a canine participant. I'm surprised the little one didn't bark back. So, but she seems to be very asleep. <laughs> I love it. So see that, that uplifted us right there. <laughs> so good. I want to say thank you to the audience. And as usual, I say, make the very best of your today, every day. And we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results.